Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue our series through the book of Philippians. This morning we find ourselves at the end of chapter 1. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 30. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God, written for you and written for me. Paul writes, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side, for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but it's a sign to you of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, a few weeks ago, I received an email from a precious nine-year-old at our church. I think she's about to turn 10. Annie Edwards, I think they're on their way to spring break this morning. Apparently, a subject had come up in their Sunday school class regarding the book of Job and all of the difficulty and suffering that Job and his family had to experience. And so through her mom's email account, I get an email one day saying, I think she calls me Uncle David, or maybe I don't know. She may have not called. I just can't remember. I think she calls me that. Um, at any rate, she was saying we'd been studying Job and... Uh, it was her understanding that God allowed Satan to afflict Job's family with great severity, even though he was a righteous man and a holy man and followed the Lord and served him. And she wanted to know what sense that made and how that was fair and how we're to understand that. I thought that was a profoundly wonderful question from a precious nine-year-old in our church, and I'm loving that she felt comfortable enough to email me about it. So I wrote her back, and I said, that's a fabulous question. 
That's a question that many people have asked over the years. It was even a question that Job's friends asked. If you're familiar with the book of Job, Job had friends, he had comforters that came to his aid, that tried to help him in the midst of an incredible hardship. His family died. He was afflicted with disease and sickness. He was suffering on a level that probably most of us can't even fathom. And so his friends enter into his life after comforting them, comforting him and trying to help him. Do you remember what his friends started to do? Does anybody remember? They start to try to help him think through what perhaps might have been what? some hidden sins that he must have been suffering with because it wouldn't seem right for God to afflict a person with such severe things absent any sin. So Job obviously had to be suffering from some hidden sin and so his friends were there trying to help him figure out what it was. Okay, which led Job to want his day in court. Job wanted his day in court. He wanted to be vindicated, as it were, because there was no hidden sin that he realized he was dealing with. That is going to be the interpretive key of our text. That idea from the book of Job is, is the interpretive key. It unlocks the meaning of Philippians 1, verses 18 through 30. Because Paul alludes back to Job chapter 13, verse 16, to kind of inform us and, and tell us kind of what's going on, what he's dealing with emotionally, what he's reacting to. So let's look at our text. So I'm very appreciative of Annie Edwards and her question, and I think that question's going to get answered as we look at our text this morning. I hope that it will. Very interesting, this text, for a lot of reasons. Look at verse 18. Paul writes, yes, and I will rejoice. Now that's hearkening back to something, and it's going to inform what comes after. He, he writes, yes, and I will rejoice. What is that going back to? What was he rejoicing about? Does anybody remember from last week, Nate's sermon? What was, what was Paul rejoicing about? It's kind of interesting. He was rejoicing that the gospel was being preached. I know this is, it's very confusing, but there were ministers, there were Christians, maybe other church planters, pastors of other house churches in Rome that were preaching Christ. They were preaching the true gospel, but they felt a spirit of competitiveness and rivalry with Paul. And they were actually trying to afflict Paul. They were trying to hurt Paul in some way, even though they were preaching the true gospel. Now that's hard to understand why would anyone who is preaching Christ, loving Christ, try to hurt Paul in ministry? And Nate did a great job of speculating, you know, um, why someone in Christian ministry might do that, what, what would lead to a spirit of rivalry and competitiveness. Um, I think what we're going to see in this passage is that Paul's suffering like the degree of affliction and suffering that Paul had to experience was a stumbling block to many people. Remember Job's friends. Job's friends were trying to figure out what hidden sin that Job had not confessed because it seems he was cursed by God. 
because of the degree of affliction he was experiencing. Well, there were other Christians that felt the same way about Paul. Felt that Paul must have done something wrong. Maybe he was overzealous. Maybe he was under some kind of curse by God because he had suffered on a level that perhaps outside the Lord Jesus, not many people had. Um, and so Paul, here in verse 18, he is saying, yes, and I will rejoice. I will rejoice, going back to verses 17 and 16, I, I rejoice that the gospel is preached even though it's being preached by people who are trying to hurt me, who are trying to afflict me. And then in verse 19, he writes, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Okay. That is an allusion back to Job 13, 16. So if you can follow me, so Paul and others in the New Testament, when they read the Old Testament, do you remember what language they're reading? Even though the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, Paul and other New Testament writers and Christians in the first century, what um, language of the Old Testament were they reading? The Greek. They were reading something called the Septuagint. And so Paul's language here, when he says, this will turn out for my deliverance, the word deliverance there is the same word for salvation. It's a strong allusion back to Job 13, 16. And in Job 13, Job is struggling because of what his friends are saying. His friends are saying, obviously, I know this is being repetitive and maybe a little redundant. They're saying there must be some hidden sin that you're dealing with. If you'll just confess that, then maybe your period of affliction would end. And so what does Job want? Does anybody remember? What is the entire book of Job about? Take a sip of your coffee. The entire book of Job is Job wants what? He wants his day in court. He's been falsely accused of secret sin or harboring something very bad that would warrant the kind of suffering. He knows he didn't do anything. He wants his day in court. He wants to stand before God and ask, what is going on? What could possibly account for the difficulties I'm experiencing? So I'm going to read to you a little bit from Job 13, verses 13 through 16. This is Job speaking. Job says, be silent. He's speaking to his friends that are trying to help him figure out what he's done wrong. Be silent. Leave me alone. Let me speak before God, and I will face the consequences. He might kill me, but I have no other hope. I'm going to argue my case with him, but this will be my deliverance. So that verse, he says, but this will be my deliverance. I am not godless. If I were, I could not stand before him. This will be my deliverance. This will turn out for deliverance for me. I am not godless. Like, I'm going to be vindicated when I stand before God. That Whatever has happened, I don't know why it's happening, but it's not because of hidden sin. So he's looking forward to the day he's going to stand before the judge of all the earth and be vindicated and acquitted. Why is Paul alluding back to Job 13, 16? What's the logic? Look at 
Philippians 1, verse 19, he's saying, this will turn out for my deliverance. These people that have been saying negative things about me, they've been trying to afflict me. He's saying, one day I'm going to stand before the judge of all the earth. And I, like Job, will be vindicated. I'm not being a bad witness. I'm not being afflicted because I'm in rebellion against the Lord. See, what Paul's opponents were saying, like in 2 Corinthians and others, they were called, Paul calls them super apostles or whatnot. People were saying there is no way that this man can be a man of God and suffer these kinds of afflictions. Paul's opponents were saying that the degree of suffering he was facing was disqualifying. I think that some of those people in Rome were kind of embarrassed by Paul. Here we're preaching this powerful Christ, this powerful gospel, and yet what is Paul doing? Where is Paul? He's in prison. So it seems to be ironic, he's preaching the power of Christ and the gospel, and yet he is chained to a Roman guard. And I think for some people, that was disqualifying. That seemed to be contradictory, to be conflicting, to preach the power of Christ, and yet you're under the power of Rome. And so Paul is saying, one day, one day, like Job, I'm going to be vindicated. I'm suffering for Christ because I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. I am doing what God has ordained me to do. In fact, it's my imprisonment that has led me here to stand before Nero. So that's the context now as we transition in this text. So I think what's happening, just to kind of summarize, Paul's being falsely accused. Um, people are stumbling over the degree to which Paul is suffering. And they're maybe thinking that that was a disqualifying factor. He's like, no, 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 one day I'm going to be vindicated. And then he says right here, look at verse 20. He says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. What does that mean? I think he's, he's, he's feeling a little sensitive. People are accusing him of not representing the gospel well, of not being a good herald, of being a bad witness. Well, he's about to have the most significant witnessing opportunity perhaps in the history of the world. Do you know what's coming in a few weeks? Paul's going to have the opportunity to do something that not even the Lord Jesus had the opportunity to do. What was coming up for Paul? Does anybody remember? Over two years before, he had been arrested in Jerusalem falsely. The Jews in Jerusalem had accused him of bringing a Gentile into a Jewish-only area of the temple, which he did not do. And so the Jews went crazy when he was there. The Romans had to take him into custody to protect his life. And so then he stood before Felix and Festus, these Roman officials who knew Paul was innocent. Why didn't those Roman officials let Paul go? Does anybody remember? They knew there were no basis to the charges, no credible witnesses that he had put a Gentile into the temple area he did not do. 
They didn't let Paul go because they were afraid of the Jews. They wanted to ingratiate themselves with the local Jews. And so Paul appealed it to Caesar. He said, I want my case to go before Caesar. I want to go over a thousand miles away, get some distance from this area, get a fair trial. The Apostle Paul is about to stand before Nero himself. Perhaps the most powerful man in the history of the world. He did not want to bring shame to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like, let me read to you. We don't know if this is true. There's a second century document that has an interesting description of the Apostle Paul. I don't know if you've ever heard this. There's a second century document that describes the Apostle Paul like this. Described Paul as a bald-headed, bow-legged, short man with a big nose. And it also says, with an unbroken eyebrow, like a unibrow, I guess. <laughs> so there's a second century document that, that some people think has some historical weight to it, that Paul was not, did not strike an imposing or impressive figure. In fact, he indicates at points that he's not articulate of speech, if you will. That... that, that his speech to the world appeared as foolishness. Maybe because of what he looked like as well. He's about to stand before Nero. And he doesn't want to bring shame. Look at the text in verse 20. It's my eager expectation. So he's depending on, in verse 19, the prayers of the Philippians, the help and power of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, He's praying that he's going to be vindicated if, in fact, he's put to death. Verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I won't be ashamed. I'm not going to bring shame. He hopes and prays. But that with what? With full courage. Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. It's one thing to think and hope and pray that you will be a good witness and that you'll be of courage when you're standing before Nero. And it's another thing to stand before Nero himself. I'm sure Paul's thinking, I mean, you know, just 300 years later, Constantine did amazing things to allow the church to grow and thrive. What, what would, you know, what would be the implications if Nero came to faith? There's a lot on the line for the Apostle Paul standing before Nero. He didn't want to bring shame on the gospel. He wanted to show courage. He didn't want to be a bad witness. And I think people were saying that he was. Look at verse 21. So he's kind of contemplating now. I'm going to maybe be before Nero. I think I'm going to survive. I think I'm going to come out of it. But it's possible, obviously, I won't. It's possible this is it for me. And then he says these very famous words in 21 through 26. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I was put to death here, that would actually be a blessing, ultimately. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. Think about it. You don't really hear this very often. Like, I'm trying to decide would I rather live or die. 
That's how sure he is, he is of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how much he knows where he's going to be when he dies. Verse 23, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh, to stay here, is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and join the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So he kind of goes through this internal debate, if you will, and he thinks it's better for you for me to stay. I think I'm going to make it out of this alive and maybe be able to visit with you and engage with you. But look what he says in verse 27. This is going to mirror what's happening in his life. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he wants for himself. When he stands before Nero, he wants to witness in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. He wants them to live that way in the midst of persecution. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for what? For the faith of the gospel. He wants to hear that they're standing firm for the faith of the gospel, verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. There was persecution going on. This is a clear sign to them, like your fidelity, your faithfulness, your, your worthy witnessing. It's a clear sign to them of their destruction. It's also a sign of your salvation and that from God. In other words, when the church doesn't die, when, as the church continues to strive forward, that's an omen to them that, that the gospel is real and true, and one day they're going to suffer judgment. But God's people are going to thrive. Verse 29, now this is key. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also, this relates to Paul's own situation, what? Suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. That's what's going on. People are accusing him of suffering too much, of it being a stumbling block. And he's like, no, 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 that's part of the Christian life. Suffering for Christ is part of the Christian life. You know, the book of Hebrews is written to encourage people that were struggling under the weight of persecution, and people were going back to a Jesus-less Judaism. He doesn't want them to do that. Stand firm. Contend for the faith. Suffering is part of the Christian life. Okay, how does this relate to us today? We as 21st century Christians, do we suffer, do we encounter persecution like this? that they were dealing with in the first century? No. Even though we've kind of entered into like a, a post-Christian period, still in Dallas, Texas, in many ways, it's still a great advantage to be a Christian. We really don't suffer much for the gospel of Jesus Christ in terms of our day-to-day -day living. Now in 30 years, maybe sooner, might be a different story, but that's not the case now. 
But whereas suffering for the gospel perhaps was a stumbling block in Paul's day, I would argue that the presence of suffering in general is a stumbling block today. For people like the existence of just suffering and evil and difficulty in this world for many like wouldn't be disqualifying of Paul it's 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 almost disqualifying of God so there's this um, philosopher since the third century BC all the way up to the 18th century with David Hume struggle with the presence of suffering with what's called the problem of evil a Scottish philosopher in the 18th century named David Hume kind of reignited this struggle um, that goes something like this. You know, is God willing to prevent evil or suffering, but he's not able? Then he's not all-powerful. Okay, is God able to prevent suffering and evil, but not willing? Then he's not all-good. If God is both willing and able to prevent evil and suffering, and yet evil and suffering still exist, then why call him God? So for many people today, the presence of, of suffering, of difficulties, of birth defects, cancer, war, famine, even as I preach this, children in parts of our world that are dying of famine and thirst, and just, you know, just read the paper, all kinds of difficult things that happen in our world. That seems to be um, contradictory to the character of God. And so a lot of people today are wondering, how, if your God really exists, then why do we live in a world that is so full of natural evil, tornadoes, hurricanes, cancer, moral evil, the wicked, horrible, heinous things that people do to each other. How can that be? Well, there is a solution. God is all-powerful. God is all-good. Evil does exist, and God has a morally sufficient reason for the evil that exists. God is using all things for the good of his people. Why does God allow evil? Why does God allow suffering? I know this is hard to understand. God allows these things ultimately for his own glory. For as God overcomes wickedness, evil, the impact of suffering, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, then all of the attributes of God are demonstrated to the world. What is the most wicked, heinous act that has ever been perpetrated in this world? The death of the innocent Son of God. The most wicked thing that could ever happen. What is the best thing that has ever happened for this fallen, sin-filled world? The death of Jesus Christ. When all is said and done, like Paul, like ultimately God will be vindicated. 
One day when we stand before the judge of all the earth, whether it be Paul suffering in his day, Christian suffering then, or just generic suffering now, we will see that God had a purpose for everything that he has done, is doing, and will do, that everything comes together to somehow glorify the Lord Jesus, and he's going to make it all right in the end. How does the book of Job end? And we'll stop with this. Job wants his day in court, right? To answer Annie Edwards' question. I directed her to the end of the book of Job. Job gets his day in court. And what does Job learn? God basically says to Job, if I'm wise enough, and if I am powerful enough, and sovereign enough to create this world and superintend everything in it, I'm powerful enough and wise enough to know how to govern the affairs of your life. That's what Paul was learning. That's what the church was learning. And that's what we're reminded of today, beloved. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you and praise you. Your providence, your work in this world, your work in our life is inscrutable. We can't understand what you're doing and why you're doing it oftentimes, Lord. But we trust that you do all things for the good of those who love you, for those who are called according to your purposes. Father, when we see the moral evil, the natural evil, birth defects and premature death and suffering and all kinds of difficulties that for honest at times we wonder is there is there anyone behind the wheel of the universe it doesn't seem to make sense lord but we know that the judge of all the earth will do right we know that you are sovereign and gracious and loving and you're doing all things for your glory and our good even when we can't understand and don't understand. Lord, um, we do pray in the midst of, of the fallenness of this world, the darkness of this world, the brokenness of this world. Lord, we pray that, that like Job, ultimately that we would continue to trust in you and love you, that we would not view our circumstances as some kind of barometer for your love for us, Help us to know that we are loved and cared for and preserved and protected and sustained through the man, Christ Jesus. We pray in his matchless name. Amen and amen.